Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water by the word, to present her to himself a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she she should be holy and blameless. Ephesians 5, verse 26. We've been exploring the meaning of the glory of God. We've been looking into this subject not to gain some mere insight into the subject from theological perspectives, but hopefully to enter into union with it, to unite with Jesus more deeply so that we become a more clear channel of his presence, which communicates his glory, because his glory is his grace and truth. We want to see the glory of God in order to be united with the glory of God, in order to manifest the glory of God, which will bring more glory to God. So let's try to unpack what this means. There are two manifestations of glory, basically in all of Scripture. There's the glory that came down at Mount Sinai, which the book of Hebrews tells us was so terrifying that the people begged Moses not to allow them to be exposed to it again. And even Moses himself is quoted in the book of Hebrews as saying that uh, he was brought to a point of exceeding trembling in the presence of that glory. For fallen human beings, this glory was death. Even an animal touching the mountain was killed. This is the ministry of death. Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's not giving death, for there is no death in God. He only is life. It is that we are so out of sync with that glory that when it comes in contact with us, all that is in opposition to that glory has to die. So it is the administration of death, Paul calls it. To us, it's death only because we are unable to live in touch with it. It's not giving death because it is of death. It is we who are of death. And perfect life will automatically kill any and all death that comes into its path. Now, think with me. Moses sees this glory along with all of Israel, and it terrifies him along with all of Israel. Yet when Moses is in the presence of the Lord... He asks of the Lord, show me your glory. Why would he be terrified of it on the one hand and then ask to be exposed to it more completely on the other? Moses was beginning to see something of the heart of God, which the sheer manifestation of glorious power would not be able to reveal. God responds to Moses by saying, you cannot see my face and survive it. I will cover you in the cleft of the rock, and after I pass by, you can see my afterglow. I will cause all my goodness to pass before you, but my face shall not be seen, for no man can see my face and live. Moses has been with the Lord in the mountain, receiving the instructions for the tabernacle. This is found in Exodus chapters 25 through 34. The tabernacle is a map into the heart of God. And from the revelation of that map, Moses begins to learn something that causes him to bypass the terrifying glory 
and go farther into the heart of God. But the manifestation of his holy rage against sin, which is the terrifying glory, Moses thoroughly understands and adheres to and respects. But there was another manifestation of glory yet to be encountered where there could be not only fellowship together with God, but somehow even a full union of man with God. So he asked to see that glory. God responded the only way that could be at that time offered to Moses, and that is, I will allow you to see my afterglow as all my goodness passes before you. Well, what was that goodness that passed before Moses? Well, it's Exodus chapter 34, verse 5 and 6. We've mentioned it before already, but I want to go back to it. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. That phrase, proclaimed the name of the Lord, could be translated, revealed the name of the Lord, unfolded the name of the Lord, or unfolded the nature of the Lord. Name, nature. It's not just a mere stating of a name like George or Steve or Patty or Deborah. It's the the nature of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and who will not under any circumstance clear the guilty. Now, a lifetime could be spent studying each one of those phrases, and I hope we will spend our life studying these things. But for this present time, we need to focus on this one truth. Moses was terrified by the first manifestation of glory that we've already described, but was still then brought to a place where he saw another revelation of the glory Glory which not only did not terrify him, but drew him to it. One which he so longed for, so hungered for, that he asked to be taken into its arms. Show me your glory. And the God who has initiated all of this, remember it is God who initiated all this. That God answers him, to paraphrase, Moses, I want you here with me. I want you to be with me, and I want to be there with you. I want you to see and know all of me that you can. But for now, it would not be possible for you to see that full glory. I will cover you so that you can bear a partial revelation of it as I pass before you. Then what did Moses see? It says in the text, he saw All of God's goodness. God's glory is not unto death, but unto life. All that is good, all that is right, all that is pure, all that is lovely and true and life-giving. That is the goodness and glory of God meant to be communicated to humanity. So then let's go to John chapter 1. 
Here we begin to see the fulfillment of God's desire for humanity, which was begun to be unfolded in Exodus, now completely revealed in John's Gospel. The voice that spoke to Moses, the word which revealed the glory of God's nature to him, but only partially, that one came down and tabernacled. That's the Greek word here. It's far more accurate than to say dwelt. This is a direct reference to the entire scenario of Exodus chapter 22 through chapter 34. The word was made flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of God, or more translations than not say, the glory of the only begotten God, who is from the heart of the Father. The tabernacle of Moses was the map pointing to this event. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the terrifying lawgiver of Sinai, the one whose face cannot be seen by us, who only came to the inner sanctum of the tabernacle, and who could only be approached by degrees, first the outer court, then the inner court, and then finally into the holiest of all, but only once a year, and on the Day of Atonement, and only by one representative, the high priest, and not without blood, this very one who came down to the tabernacle of Moses has now come down in John chapter 1 and tabernacled with us in a human body. And John says, we beheld his glory. Not the glory that terrified, but the glory that saves. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John clearly and unabashedly takes Torah language and purposefully uses it to make a crystal clear statement. In the beginning, harking back to Genesis 1, in the beginning God created, but now in John 1, in the beginning, that same God who created has come down. He has come down in the garden. He has come down on Sinai. He has come down in the tabernacle, but now he himself has come down into the womb of a woman and taken up his earthly tabernacle of flesh, and we are able to see his face and not die. John reaches again into Torah language to repeat the warning of Exodus that no man shall see his face and live. But here, John says, again, with unmistakable clarity of language, no man has seen God at any time. But the only begotten God, he who is himself God, who is closest to the bosom of the unseen eternal, he has revealed, proclaimed, declared, unveiled, manifested, fully disclosed him. So when Philip later asks Jesus, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied, Jesus says, Philip, have I been so long with you and you still do not know me? He who sees me has seen the Father. There is nothing of God that is not found in Jesus of Nazareth. If we want to know God, we look at Jesus to find all of the fullness of the Godhead bodily present. The glory of Moses, which faded after he came down from the mountain, is now fully 
offered without fear of that glory fading away. It's in the face of Jesus Christ. And we behold his face without danger of death, but only, on the contrary, only in that face do we find life forever and are being transformed into his very image from one level of glory to another as we behold his face. Glory is another word that John uses uniquely for a specific purpose. Just as he takes the Torah phrase in Hebrew to make his point about creation in the beginning, so he takes the term from the Greek language of the day that gives far greater to that term. Lagos, the word which was understood in Greek philosophy as the ground of being, the meaning of all things, the word. He ties that word logos to in the beginning to give us a new and clearer revelation of in the beginning was the logos and the logos was with God and the logos was God and the logos tabernacled, became flesh and tabernacled among us. Then he takes another Greek word, a word used by Aristotle that previously had merely just meant the appearance of a, of a thing that which the thing appears to be. John takes that word, doxa, and translates it as glory, uses it to describe the undescribable, revelation of the unrevealable, the glory of God. And he uses the word over and over as a picture of the unveiling of the greatness and goodness and character of God who loves us and longs to give us life and bring us into life. God's appearance is the appearance of ultimate goodness, holiness, life, hope, and love. And this glory is not only revealed to us, but for us. But not only revealed for us, but also eventually through us and in us. So our opening scripture from Ephesians 5 speaks of the glorious church without spot or wrinkle. It is this revelation first of God, then of Messiah, and then of God in union with a people whom God has brought to himself and united with that has so little been understood by Christians. Sadly, much of the history of the church is one of ecclesiastical politics, earthly striving, sad scenarios of human faded glory, The wonderful exceptions to that have been where people in union with Jesus manifest his love, his grace, his character, and truth as salt and light against a rotten and dark world. It's a painful fact that depending on where you live and how you were brought up, or depending on your more recent experiences with church, that the very word church conjures not an image of a glorious transformed people in union with the head and therefore in union with each other and drawing our very life only from him, but rather it conjures images of buildings and possibly fights and quarrels and squabbles in those buildings or scandals, or harsh memories of legalisms, or terrifying sermons full of the dire warnings of the law with little or no revelation of grace, or, as in more recent days, 
a false image of grace with no understanding at all of God's holiness or wholeness of freedom that comes from union with him that delivers us from sin, but rather tells us we're okay in our sin. What do you think when you hear the word church? What comes to your mind? What emotions does it evoke? It's evidence of a real problem in all of us if we view the word so negatively that even when we hear it in the mouth of the Lord Jesus himself, our inner response is a negative one. Matthew 18, Jesus speaks of, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew 18, take the matter before the church, he says, and let the church judge. Revelation 3, to the seven churches which are in Asia, Jesus says. Now, does the same negative concept you may have of church when speaking of it in your own day or by your own experience, does that same negativity rise up in you even when it's Jesus speaking of the church? If so, we all have some serious adjustments to make in our attitudes and our hearts. We must align ourselves with Jesus concerning his church. For it is his church, just as the first Adam birthed Eve from his side, so Jesus birthed his bride, the church, out from the wounds in his side on the cross. So may God help us learn to make a clear distinction between our many and various bad experiences in what culturally may or may, may not have been church but to never dishonor or disregard or belittle the inexpressible preciousness of what the real church is. Remember, too, that the precious real church is often wearing the disguise of the frustrating, irritating, and not-so-glorious trappings within the system that has made us reject or at least distance ourselves from what we call church. God is working in spite of and inside of all kinds of systems and in no system. The unity of the church is a vital truth that runs throughout the scripture, so we disregard that only if we're being foolish. But I don't need to explain that the unity of the church is not, and really never was, found in denominational identity. We all know of folks in our own denominational backgrounds, maybe, whom we cannot relate to very well, and yet we know others from a widely divergent background or no religious affiliation at all with whom we are as close as any human family can be. The binding tie that holds us together is not a set of doctrinal agreements per se, but it is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that will become more and more the case as God continues to bring forth his temple, his people, his church. When Mary and I go into an area where we are going to serve, we don't pay much attention to the various church signs posted around the town. Those are the different houses where different parts of the one family live, so to speak. And we know that in many of such buildings, sadly, there are church-in-name-only groups, while others who are part of the church may have no home that are on the streets, scattered here and there, or behind closed doors, meeting in little groups, or even living alone, though that should not be so where things are in line with God's plan. God never wants us to be alone. But if you are, you're still His, and if you're really His, 
Eventually, there will be a manifestation of his grace through you that will bring others in with you. Now, we are, I believe, entering the time of the fulfillment of God's purpose for his church. Many are lamenting what they call the demise of the evangelical church, and they quote numbers that reflect a disintegration in what they call the mainline denominations. And there are some sad scenarios, for sure, in those circles. But overall, this is not any indication of the condition of the real church. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, that the real church is the pillar and ground of the truth. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, he says, The Lord knows those who are his. The church is being shaken and sifted. Hebrews 12 says, Everything that can be shaken will be shaken, so that that which cannot be shaken may remain secure, and we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. The wheat and the tares will be sifted and separated. The prayer of Jesus for his church in John 17 will be brought to pass, and we all may be one in him so that the oneness the world will see will then be a great power that will evangelize the world. Paul says in Ephesians 3 verse 10 that it is by the church, not the building on the corner that has five pastors a year because they can't get along with anybody or because they have covered themselves in rainbows celebrating Baal worship in the name of Christianity. No, but those that are truly his, that that many-sided wisdom of God, that church through whom the many-sided wisdom of God will be made known to the principalities and powers. It's by that church that the evil powers are confronted and rebuked. Now think with me for a moment about how Paul describes the real identity and character of the church. In Ephesians 4, verses 2 through 6, he speaks of our call to not obtain the unity of the Spirit, but to keep the unity of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit is unassailable. It's it's there. All we have to do is attach to it and be in cooperation with the heart of the Spirit to be in unity with every person who is also in unity with Christ. This is how the whole body is fitly joined together and, in, and compacted and causes the whole body to build up itself in love because it's all connected to the head, Colossians tells us. In God's eyes, it's never interrupted except where there is a refusal of love. For there is only one body, one spirit, even as you are called into one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and who is in you all. For those of you who were raised singing great hymns, or who have learned them recently, you might know the lyrics of the church is one foundation. It's a hymn I can never sing with dry eyes. The church is one foundation, is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. But as often as the case with older hymns, there are lost verses. I wonder if the prophetic wisdom in these verses written by Samuel Stone in 1866 might have been just too much to take in by the denominationally bound church system of 
his day or anybody's day for that matter because you would think they would have been resurrected and sung again in later years. But I doubt if any of us have ever heard this particular verse unless you are Anglican. Long with a scornful wonder men saw her sore oppressed by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morning song. The evening sun is shining, the cloudy day is past. The time of their repining is at an end at last. The voice of God is calling to unity again. Division walls are falling with all the creeds of men. Back to the one foundation from sects and creeds made free. Come saints of every nation to blessed unity. Once more the ancient glory shines as in days of old and tells the wondrous story, one God, one faith, one fold. Now this is not saying that doctrine is not important, and it's certainly not an affirmation of some one-world government ecumenicism that speaks more of the harlot of Revelation 17 and 18 than it speaks of the unity of the church. No, Mr. Stone is writing a, a spiritual revelation of the purpose and plan of God for the body of Christ, and we are beginning to experience it now in this generation. While, yes, there's all kinds of craziness and heresies and false doctrines and misunderstandings and affirmations of sinful lifestyles in the name of goodness and love and grace that are all deceptions and misunderstandings at best and demonic lies at worst, in the midst of that, God is shaking things so that there is a cleansing and a purging and a separation of the wheat from the tares. The New Testament reference to doctrine is much purer than what it has degenerated into as men's creeds and sectarian prejudices have produced. Paul would never be supportive of refusal to fellowship with someone over secondary or tertiary issues, such as so many of us divide over. And I will not try to delineate what I consider secondary or tertiary, lest it cause division between me and my listeners. But New Testament doctrine is always centered on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. All Mr. Stone is doing in putting into verse what Paul wrote in Ephesians 4 is to bring that revelation to clarity in the singing of hymns, which is one of the great reasons and purposes of good hymns, that this unity of love would manifest in a maturing, perfecting of the entire body of believers. This is Ephesians chapter 4. And that at that time, there will there will come a day when this perfecting work reaches its climax and all will come into the unity of faith. Unity of faith here, most translations will put in the, the article, the faith. And that's okay. I mean, it's, it's certainly permissible, but there's an interpretation behind that concept of the faith that in my opinion, harkens to a certain prejudice uh, that we've got, we've got to come into a creedal unity. Well, the church has had creedal unity in the form of denominationalism 
for hundreds of years. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about when he talks about to the acknowledgement of the Son of God. It's not talking about a creedal affirmation. We believe these points about Jesus Christ. We believe these facts of history, even these facts of theological history. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about a unity of faith in our knowledge, personal, intimate knowledge of the Lord Jesus, so that we come into that unity by our unity with Christ. So if I'm drawing near to Jesus and you're drawing near to Jesus, we're both going to be in that same unity, not because we have believed everything exactly the same, but because we love and adore and honor and obey Him. And He brings that uh, oneness through the power of His Holy Spirit. And this will happen until we reach what Paul calls a perfect man, the measure of the stature of the fullness of the body of Christ. Now, Paul prays for this to occur in each individual as he prays for it to happen in the entire body of Christ. That prayer is found in chapter 3, verse 14 through 21. For this cause, what cause? Well, the cause of what we're talking about, the whole church coming into this understanding and reality, not just understanding from the neck up, but the reality of it and the way we live with Jesus and with each other. So for this cause, I bow my knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the entire family in heaven and earth derives its name, that he would grant us, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in our inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height, and to know, intimately know, the love of Christ which surpasses mere human knowledge, so that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Do you get this? We glide over these verses with little comprehension of what they're saying. This says that God intends His presence, power, purity, and purpose to be manifested to and through the church. Now, typical human presumption, if we can't comprehend how this will occur, especially as we look around us at the weakness and confusion of what we think of as church, we then just simply reject what the scriptures are saying and start altering it into what we think it's saying that, well, that will be true after the rapture or in heaven or in some far-off dispensation that really has nothing to do with us and our present world. Or worse, we dispensationalize it and say, well, it's positionally true. Well, you know, who cares about positional truth if it doesn't manifest itself in reality? That thinking is neither biblical or meaningful or useful. The need for the manifestation of God's life and presence to and through his church is now. When the forces of evil in opposition to God's life are at their height. So let's go to Isaiah chapters 59 and 60 and look at a prophetic picture of what we are trying to talk about here. Isaiah 59 without going into the historical background of the context of what Isaiah is addressing 
let me just say, we've said it many times, the prophetic scripture has both an application to its time and a projectile into the future quite often. Uh, we've talked about that in various other occasions, and so I don't want to take up time with it here, but it can have a fulfillment in its day and still obviously project into the future of our day. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. This is exactly applicable to us right now. The Lord is not unable or unwilling to hear us in the midst of this rising tide of monstrous evil that we are now aware of. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hid his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue perverseness. Then he begins to describe both the era of the time of this writing and our present era. There is no justice. No one pleads for the truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive and think up new ways to do mischief and to bring forth new forms of iniquity. They make haste to shed innocent blood. Their paths are crooked, and and whoever walks in those paths knows no peace, but walks in darkness, groping like the blind, groping as if they had no eyes. He said it's not just that their eyes don't work. They act like people who've never seen or have no capacity to see, stumbling at noonday as if it were night. Truth fails, and whoever departs from evil makes himself a target, Or the Hebrew here implies whoever departs from evil is considered a madman. If you're not perverse and wicked and filthy, uh, they ask you, what's what's wrong with you? Paul refers to that in 2 Timothy 3 when he says, in the end of the age, they will hate you because you're not practicing evil. You're a target because you're not evil. Uh, As in, uh, then he goes on to say, "The, the Lord saw it and was amazed that there was no one to act for righteousness. So God himself acted. And I'll paraphrase paraphrase through that uh, and go to the next verse. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against it, against him uh, the enemy has come in like a flood. You don't need me to tell you that. Uh, I, I'm very concerned about this in myself and in all of us. What good does it do to keep recounting the obvious? On the one hand, we recount it because there are so many people that truly want to stick their head in the sand and play like everything's okay, which is hard for me to comprehend that people can do that. Uh, and yet, it's a it's a human thing. On the one hand, it seems like a characteristic of, of the very human. On the other hand, I'm aware of the insanity of not paying attention to the nature of the inflow of evil that we are facing now in unprecedented ways, uh, both in the country and in the whole world. But God says, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against it. Do you hear what that says? What does that mean? Well, in all battles, both ancient and modern, the lifting up of the standard 
is what the leader on a battlefield does when there needs to be a rallying of the troops back to a point of focus. And the standard is the symbol of that which is most important to them. The raising up of the standard for us is the lifting up of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. When that standard is lifted up, as it is being now, people who once called themselves Baptist or Methodist or Catholic or Presbyterian or Pentecostal or Lutheran or Greek Orthodox or whatever you want to name, people are gathering together unto Jesus. The Genesis 49 says, To him shall the gathering of the people be. To the Messiah shall the gathering of the people be. And then it goes on to say, The Redeemer shall come to Zion. And to them that turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor the mouth of your children or your children's children, says the Lord, from now and forever. This, to me, is a direct reference to Joel chapter 2. I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh right before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And... uh I will turn the hearts of the children back to the fathers and the hearts of the fathers back to the children in Malachi chapter 4 and Joel chapter 2. I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. This is all referring to the close of the age, not just to the time of Isaiah. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon you, his church, And his glory shall be seen upon you, and the Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes around you and see. All they gather themselves together, and they come to you. Your sons and daughters shall come from afar. Then you shall see and flow together. That's what we're doing. We're seeing Jesus, and we are flowing together to him. And as a result, there is a unifying of the body of Christ, which fulfills the prayer of Jesus in John 17, that we all might be one as Jesus and the Father are one, so that the world may know who he is through his people. And your heart shall fear and be enlarged, because the abundance of the sea shall be converted to you, and the forces or the wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. I believe this. the best way to interpret the Scriptures is with the Scriptures. Let the Bible comment on the Bible. And in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, it says, For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Ezekiel 47, verses 3 through 5, says, first there will be waters that are ankle deep, and then water to the knees. Then there will be waters to swim in, a river that cannot be passed over, as the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And then Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, for this, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, 
I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Obviously, he's not talking about that particular rebuilt house of Ezra. He's not talking about even the temple of Solomon. What's he talking about? He's talking about the temple that Paul and Peter refer to in the New Testament, the temple of the church of the living God. He's talking about the people of God built together a spiritual house for the dwelling and habitation of the Lord in the end of the age. Then he says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord. So why does he mention the silver and the gold? Because do you understand that the temple of Solomon, if it was built today, would cost billions, not millions, billions of dollars. It would take approximately $1 billion just of gold. That doesn't include the ivory and the silver and the other accoutrements that would go in, the the cedars of Lebanon, uh, all the other things that went into the building of that temple. Well, that temple was pointing towards something. Can you imagine uh, uh, first First Chronicles chapter 29 gives you a detailed picture of the incredible riches of that temple. And it was only a shadow of what God's intention is for his church. Now, we're not, I'm not talking here about Cadillacs and flashy rings and all the kind of name-it-claim-it glitter misuse of money that is so common in materialist America today in the name of Christianity. I'm talking about the, the, the spiritual realities, but those spiritual realities include natural money. It includes resources. It includes whatever we need to finish our task. And he says, the glory of the Lord uh, of this latter house will be greater than the glory of the former. I will cause the forces of the, the wealth of the Gentiles to come to you. The sea will be converted over to you and the forces of the wealth of the Gentiles will pour to you as I begin to fill the earth with my glory. Folks, I don't know how the end of the age will unfold. I, I've told you before, I try to be respectful and and uh, submissive to other people's points of view about the end of the age because I don't think any of us have the whole picture. I think uh, we need to be very careful not to be hyper-dogmatic. And I, I, see, I see people becoming dogmatic about it over and over, which is one reason why I've told you I don't have a, a teaching series on the end of the age because it would have to be uh, replaced every 30 days because it, it would have to have a paration date. That's the term I was trying to come up with. And you've heard me say that before, and I know some of you get frustrated with me saying that. You, you think, Clay, it's just a cop-out. It's not a cop-out. I've been studying this stuff for almost 45 years, and uh, I've heard... I think just about every point of view there is on it because I respectfully pursue it. I study it. I I, I want to hear what, what every group says because I, I think God has put wisdom and discernment in the whole body of believers. But as I've said before, and I know some of you are tired of hearing this example, but it's such a clear and well-positioned example. We're like the five blind men touching the elephant. We think... Everybody's got a hand on one part of the elephant, and the guy with his tail, the guy with his tusk, and the guy with his trunk, the guy with his 
side and the, the guy touching his leg, they all think they've got the elephant figured out. If they would all pull together and, and, and join forces, they would have a pretty good picture of a whole elephant, although they might put the tail where the tusk is supposed to go and all kind of other things. I think we, we've got a really discombobulated picture of, of our prophetic elephant, elephant. But I think the Holy Spirit is giving wisdom and revelation. You know, God did tell Daniel two times in the book of Daniel, seal up the words of this prophecy, for they won't be opened until the end. Then what do we do? We spent the next hearts will fail them for fear of looking after those things that are coming on the earth, for the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Uh, and then uh, everything is, is uh, delineated that will begin to unfold, that will bring the end to the age. We're there now. We're there now. Uh, at the risk of sounding dogmatic, I, I don't understand how you can doubt that the scenario that will eventually bring the close of the age is, is well on its way. I don't mean by that that it's going to happen today or tomorrow or the next day or 10 years from now or 20 years from now. I think it gets a little ridiculous to say it might not happen for several hundred years. I think that flies in the face of too many scriptures uh, that uh, would not make any sense if that was true. But my point in all of that is to say, since we don't have a clear scenario, about the details of the end of the age, but we do have a clear delineation of what God intends for his people to become in the end of the age, in their union with Christ and with one another. Then what are you and I to do in practical ways to obey the Lord in reference to these issues? Well, I would say, first of all, be very careful how you relate to the whole body of Christ. Check your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to check your heart. You can't check your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to check your heart and show you if there's any prejudiced in, in, attitude in you toward the, any part of the body of Christ. That, and then ask the Lord to cleanse it out of you. Uh, on the other hand, See if there's anything in you that tends toward an ecumenicism that would deny vital truth at the expense of uh, the scriptures. You're, you'd be willing to embrace things that, uh, from a humanistic point of view, seem loving and good, but from the point of view of scripture is an embracing of that which is evil and destructive and against God. I know that opens all kinds of cans of worms, and I don't need to really say that to this audience. Uh, I'm insulting the intelligence of most of you who've been listening for a long time, but the obvious, for instance, that I'm referring to is the whole idea that to be loving and to be kind, you must affirm a lifestyle of sexual sin that the Bible condemns, and the Bible condemns it because it is destructive. The Bible doesn't condemn sexual sin because God's a party pooper and doesn't want people to have fun, for heaven's sakes. Again, that's you talk about insulting people's intelligence. Obviously, that's true. But yet, obviously, it must not be obvious. Because if it were, there wouldn't be so many doltish people 
who in the name of, quote, being loving, are affirming things that are destructive to people's lives and could be destructive to their eternal destination. That's too large a subject, I know, to get into in detail. But on that score, let me bring our time together to a close by addressing one more issue concerning the glory of God, and I'm referring now back to that original use of the term glory, which refers to the the wrath of God. The, The glory of God is seen in several places in Scripture as manifesting at a time of judgment. There is the glory of goodness and mercy and love that we've been talking about this whole time. But then what happens when the goodness and love and mercy is rejected? And the only way of the, of coming into the presence of God, which is through the cross, through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that way has been supplanted by some humanistic replacement, which is what antichrist is. Antichrist, anti in Greek doesn't mean necessarily to be against as much as it means to replace. And so Christ is replaced with a false Christ, a false gospel, one that Paul warns could easily be perpetrated against people in Galatians 1 and in other places in, in his writing. He warns about these things. Jesus warns about it in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and Luke 21, there'll be false Christs, false offerings of a false path. What about that? Well, the glory of God, if there is no glory of of salvation, then the glory that is revealed is a glory that brings destruction. You, you, you go back to that terrifying glory that uh, we referred to in the beginning of this time together, that caused Moses to tremble and shake. If there is no no atonement, no blood sacrifice, no standing in the gap so that the glory of God is satisfied that there has been justice and righteousness affirmed, if justice and righteousness are rejected and not affirmed, then the glory of God brings what is glorious from the God point of view, but is destructive damnation to those who have rejected his His salvation and his mercy. Two verses that refer to this, uh, Revelation chapter 14, verse 7. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Give glory to God for the destruction and judgment on Babylon. Then uh, one more verse in reference to glory as judgment would be Revelation 15, verse 4, or excuse me, Revelation 11, verse 13. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. There is a powerful and poignant, current, up-to-date, very present manifestation of this very thing going on in our culture. 
the rainbow is a covenant symbol of God's grace and mercy toward mankind after the flood. It's bad enough to be in rebellion against God, but to hijack his very symbols in order to enhance your own rebellious point of view is insanity. This country, in its insanity, decreed that God's ordained definition of marriage is to be overthrown as it was prophesied this would happen in Isaiah chapter 24, that they will actually seek to replace the times and the seasons and the ordinances of God. And uh, that's what we've done in this country. The rainbow, which has been hijacked by that whole movement, was then displayed on the White House. They had to have it all set up and ready to go. They would have not had time to turn the White House into a rainbow only a few hours after the uh, handing down of the Supreme Court decision had they not been in collusion together and had pre-knowledge. But then also the rainbow was displayed in various other high-profile places. The uh, the tower, uh, the 9-11 uh, replacement tower, uh, the rainbow colors were displayed, and then um, in various other locations around the country. On 9-11, a rainbow, a vivid, strong, powerful rainbow, you can Google it, you can see pictures of it, was seen right over ground zero. Don't mistake this display of the rainbow as a blessing, as a covenantal promise of good things to come. That's not what it was. What God was saying is you who have desecrated my covenant, disregarded my laws, and chosen to ensconce Baal and Moloch in the place of your God. I see and mark what you're doing, and I am displaying for the world a picture of my sovereign marking of what you've done. I don't know how that's going to unfold in the long term, But I just will uh, appeal to all of you listening, and I appeal to all people anywhere who may hear this, whether they are uh, in alignment with what I'm saying or in opposition to it. Please fear the Lord and go before him in humility and ask for his mercy. uh, and, And please repent. If you've been in sympathy with anything that aligns itself with uh with evil. Uh, you know, the same forces that built the tower, that the, the towers that were destroyed in 9-11 are the same forces that also uh, propagated the beginning of the murder of children wholesale in this country. They are tied at the tail in the spirit realm. And uh, God sees all of this as the the willful displacing of himself and replacing him with false gods. If any of you have seen the amazing display of the face of Kali, the bloodthirsty vampire goddess of Hinduism, uh, her face displayed on the uh, Empire State Building. Just Google it. Look at it. Uh, This is where we are in this nation. The glory of God that doesn't 
bring salvation will bring judgment. There is no middle ground. There's either the glory of deliverance and salvation revealed in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ, or there is the glory of utter holiness that will destroy everything not of itself. And the only safe place from that destruction is in the ark of Christ, who is our hope and our salvation. May God have mercy on those who turn toward him. I do not any longer pray for America. I pray for the people of God in America who have a heart toward the Lord in any way at all. I think that the days for America are numbered. And the glory of God will eventually fill the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. Until that time, may we be faithful to him in small things and in large things. Thank you for listening. God bless you all. You're in our prayers. Please keep us in yours.